Uh, good morning. And uh, we read from Luke 14, please. But when thou mark, when thou makest a feast called the called the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Um, I'd like to thank Gail for thinking enough of me to ask me to teach these four classes, uh, and. Uh, I think most of you know me. I'm Jim Palmer, and I've taught English, high school English, for 40 years. That's hard to believe, isn't it? I was at Randolph School in Huntsville. Come on in. My, my special aide here has something for you. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. For 18 years, and I've been at uh, last 22 years at Altamont, and for 25 of those 40 years, I was a uh, chair of the department. So uh, anyway, now this is the first. Uh, Sunday school class, I've done an Advent. I have taught over a dozen or so 10-week uh, adult night classes at Independent Presbyterian Church. So, you know, kind of got some experience there. And I, uh, I'm i lucky. I'm like Jeannie and Carol, you know, just uh, teach 40 years and I still love it. So I'm, I'm blessed there. And I enjoy doing the classes at IPC, too. Uh, well, this course is called uh, The Lame Shall Enter First, which is a title of one of Flannery O'Connor's stories, as you know. And uh, she did her master's back there, so if I mess up, <laughs> uh, she'll get me. Um, and, uh, and Grace, Manners, and the Grotesque in the works of Flannery O'Connor. So what I'm going to try to do is, uh, uh, you know, a story or two each of the, each of the Sundays, and we've got four days there. Um, anyway, before I get started with that, if I could get personal for just a second, um, and I, I think I've been acquainted with uh, Grace myself uh, in that, uh, well, let's see, uh, eight years ago, uh, my, uh, my life seemed to kind of dissipate on me as my marriage of 34 years just kind of went up in smoke. And uh, as my uh, ex-wife uh, married a former French friend of mine and moved to, to France and uh, lived there. And so since she was the only one I dated all the way through college, uh, that was 37 years of my life that were in jeopardy of just kind of being ripped away. And uh, so I entered what I, Andrew Lytle called the, the long night. And uh, Sandy and Paul were just instrumental in helping me, you know, get through that. Uh, those tough times when, as as Pat Conroy said, uh, you know, sometimes it hurt to breathe. And uh, Sandy got me uh, <clears throat> involved with a small group, and uh, fortunately she lived right across the street. And so I'm going to give you a, a number of times where you could just call things coincidence, or you could call them grace. And I, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll call them grace. And to me, grace is God's interaction in, in this temporal world. Although Flannery uses his uh, somebody receiving salvation, so we're a little different there. So, but anyway, so uh, how do you deal with something like that? Uh, for any of you ever encountered depression, which I hope none of you do, uh, my advice uh, get outside in the sun, keep moving, get around uh, friends and family, and just so I was on, uh, you know, the Jemison Parkway just walking for my life. You may have seen me out there, you may see me out there with Jocelyn some. And, uh, well, let's see. The uh, she, my ex, left Sunday morning about 8:30, and so well, you know where I headed. 
come over here to the nine o'clock service and I remember just uh you know kneeling in a pew and just crying and uh and I felt more than one uh kind hand on my shoulder going by and that's that's why I'm here right now. I love the people here at Advent. We've got we've got great folks, and uh, so you know, uh, again, just a great coincidence or grace there. And so I'm out there, kind of walking for my life. I'm, I'm Jemison Parkway. Sometimes I remember one day, as God, I think I walked 15 miles on a bowl of raisin bran or something. I lost. Uh, uh, 23 pounds in a month which is a lot for me because I'm not a very big guy uh, but anyway time and time again I'd be out there walking on Jemison and, and you just feel like you know as I said with Conroy it's, it's, it just hurt to breathe and you said how am I gonna make it till tomorrow and again and again and again I would bump into a former student I know you've had this happen, and you, ladies over there, we've all had that happen, or or the parents of a former student, and they just say, you know, how much they enjoyed the class or whatever, and I just say, okay, I guess I can make it one more day here, and so you can call it a coincidence, or you can you can call it grace. I'm, I have to go towards grace. Joss and I started dating the month that the divorce was finalized. You know, I've, I've known a lot of other folks that going through something like that, and there's often a lag time there where it doesn't work out. So I think I've really been blessed in a, in a number of ways there. Uh, well, anyway, God knew I was in trouble, so he sent the best he had, and Jocelyn just kind of mysteriously appeared there at the at the uh, Mountain Brook Y at the pool. Nobody meets at the pool. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. I mean, I'm, I want to. I keep wanting to put a bronze marker there where... Uh, where we met and she wasn't very interested she was swimming fast she could to get away but fortunately I, I could walk faster than she could swim and so anyway I well, then we met again on the Jemison Parkway and things went a little better then um, but anyway so uh, uh, that's enough about me let me introduce so the course is uh, you know uh, with Grace in, uh, in Flannery's courses and she uh, was born in Flannery, Mary Flannery O'Connor was born in Savannah, Georgia, and then soon thereafter they moved to Milledgeville, Georgia, where the state insane asylum is. And more than one critic suggested she went there to find a couple of characters for her stories. But she lived in a, a home, a farm with her parents named Andalusia, and she raised pet peacocks and wrote stories. And uh, unfortunately, she contracted lupus, a very bad blood dis disorder that killed her daddy. And by the time that she was 39, she was dead. But in those short years, she became one of the greatest short story writers that this country's ever, that the world has ever seen. Um, amazing. And uh, I can uh, I can summarize her in just three words, really. Mystery, manners, and the grotesque. I call it grace in the in the bulletin to try to make for a little clarity's sake. But that's kind of the name of a collection of her criticism, mystery and manners. Mystery is the mystery of God's grace. And that's the theme of her stories. Somebody receives salvation in every one of her stories. You've heard some of this before, haven't you? That, uh, and one of the fun things is to find out who it is. And it's not always whom you think deserves it. She talked about the shocking and inexplicable presence of grace. And the way you, what you look for is somebody's linked with either peacocks or the tree line, the skyline, where the trees meet the sky. 
and that's just always the way it is. And that, that you know, when you find that, then that's the person. And manners is a synecdoche. That's a seventy-five cent teacher word. You know where a part stands for the whole. Lend me your ears, give me a hand, that kind of stuff. Manners is a synecdoche for the South, and that's her setting. Uh, and don't call her a Southern writer or a regional writer. She'll get upset with you because if you're any good, you're writing about the just the human heart and the human condition. But uh, you have to put your story somewhere. And so she was in, in Georgia, and that's you know where the stories come out. Have y'all passed by on I-65? Have y'all seen that kind of near Thorsby? Where, where up on the hill you see you've got the, the grim reaper and it says go to church or the devil will get you. Every time I go there I said Flannery would have loved putting that in one of her short stories. That would just be pure Flannery. And then the grotesque is her style. And you know Hollywood uses the grotesque to uh, you know kind of gross you out and sell tickets and stuff. But you, when you see the southern writers Faulkner and uh, O'Connor and uh, McCullers and people like that using the grotesque. It's to, to pay attention. This matters. And uh, and this is what makes Flannery unique to me. I've read a lot of religious writers and I've read a lot of grotesque writers. She's the only grotesque religious writer that I've ever come across. And so she's fascinating. She's uh, She always feels like home base. One little link I have, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Andrew Lytle, who was a big voice in the Southern Renaissance. He was friends with uh, John Crow Ransom and Robert Penn Warren and people like that. But uh, I was privileged at Sewanee to have his uh, last modern fiction class. And uh, a lot of what I'm going to do with this first story is from, uh, it's just pure idle. But he was teaching a class at uh, one, an Iowa University and uh, creative writing class and the f reading the first stories and they weren't very good. They weren't very good. And then, whoa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just, who who is this? Went the name at the end. Mary Flannery O'Connor, which is this. Oh, so that's kind of a cool thing that, uh, you know, little connection. And uh, just said, you've got it. That's about the way it is right there. So anyway, let me look at this. Did everybody get one of these sheets from Jocelyn? Anybody come in? Didn't get a. Uh, I tell my students this was done on something you never heard of called a typewriter. But I, this was really nice. We we were. I had a, a class at UAH when I was working on my master's and with Carter Martin who is, you know, if you look in the Norton Anthology, those, he's one of the first names in there. He's one of the world's authorities on Flannery O'Connor, so he was a great person to teach the class. And we went to Milledgeville and, uh, you know, she is, she is dead, but uh, her peacocks were still running around and they were molting and so I got a, everybody got a Flannery O'Connor peacock feather, which was one of my prized possessions. and. I lost here. It's got stolen or something. It's just I was up at Huntsville at Randolph then, and I was putting stuff in the morning report. If you seen a peacock feather, it's, give it to Mr. Palmer. It's just totally stupid. I had students coming down to the Birmingham Zoo and chasing peacocks and ripping feathers out, bringing it back. So proud. I said, "Thank you," but it's it's not from Flannery. It's just you know it's not quite the same thing. Well, anyway, all right. Let's let me. I'll go through just a few of these and. I'm gonna, I want to get that story finished before I have to knock off. Uh, but I encourage you to read the whole sheet sometime. The woods are full of regional writers, and it is the horror of every serious southern writer that he will become one of them. The only way for him to keep from becoming one of them is to examine his conscience and to observe our fierce but fading manners in the light of an ultimate concern. Boy, that's a good line. Our, they're, they're dying out, those manners. But you, we can still go out in the country, can't you? You ever go out there and somebody going by in a pickup truck and they're waving or old couple rocking on the porch waving to everybody that goes by and 
You don't see that in the big cities, do you? But it's still there in the light of an ultimate concern, which is her faith. She went to church every day. She was a devout Catholic. I didn't say every Sunday, every day. And on this on this visit, we got to go visit her church, and that's uh, so. The um, connection here with faith and fiction works great. The novelist with Christian concerns. Well, listen to the recording, Sandy, okay? Or I'll come over and we'll give you a little tutorial, okay? All right, thanks for coming. The novelist with Christian... Here's why she used the grotesque, okay? The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to the hostile audience. And then I capitalize this. Mm -hmm. To the heart of hearing you shout. And for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. That's why she used grotesque. She said, you have been so inured. You have seen so, much, so many rapes and shootings and all these famines and floods and stuff. You've kind of got like the correspondent open boat. Your skin's gotten a little thick. And so I've got to be downright shocking to get your attention, you know, like a tra you know, traveling Bible salesman stealing a wooden leg from a woman up in a hayloft. I mean, who would think of something like that? Uh, that'll be the next story. I'm getting ahead there. So she's got to get your attention so that she can get her religious message across about the importance of God's grace and receiving salvation. Uh, she was very sensitive. You know, northern critics love to hammer the southern writers about using the grotesque, and they, uh, and, but she gave as good as she got. She said, I have found that anything that comes out of the south is going to be called grotesque by the northern reader, unless it is grotesque, in which case it's going to be called realistic. I just love that line. Y'all seen the grotesque up north so much, you think it's normal. <laughs> At least we know it's grotesque. And then again, she wasn't through. Whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it's because we're still able to recognize one. Wow. Wow. I mean, she, she was a tough lady. She went on a pilgrimage. She, she did get to go to Rome, and she was, you know, on, on uh, crutches because of the lupus, but she was determined to go, and she bragged she had the best-looking crutches in Rome. So she, she was feisty, <laughs> she was, and she's a tough lady, but really a good heart there. And then the last one, near the end, uh, when Walk, Walker Percy was on the Today Show, and y'all know about Walker Percy, went to BUS, lived on the corner house on Ridge Drive, Ridge and Country Club. I, I don't know if you're acquainted with him, got the National Book Award, went to my old high school, Birmingham University School. But anyway, he was on the Today Show, and he was interviewed, and he says, when he was asked why there were so many good Southern writers, he said, because we lost the war. What he was saying is that we have had our fall. It's like being kicked out of the Garden of Eden twice. A second fall from grace. We've gone into the modern world with an inburnt knowledge of human limitations and with a sense of mystery which could not have developed in our first state of innocence. We were doubly blessed, not only in our fall, but in having the means to interpret it. It's nice, so we had the material to write. You know, having, if you're a, you know, rich southern white guy, you know, the south is, you were in good shape there. And then to and go into the Civil War knowing you'd win the war because you, all you need is love of land and courage, right? Uh, but so when you're kicked out of the Garden of Eden and you have people named Faulkner and O'Connor and Wolfe and McCullers and people like that, wealthy, 
you get the Southern Renaissance. The best writing in the world was done in, the, in our backyard in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Someone once said to Flannery that the Eucharist, Holy Eucharist, is just symbolic. It doesn't actually become, you know, blood and, you know, his flesh. And she shot back at the Eucharist is only a symbol. To hell with it. <laughs> I've been wasting my life, okay? Anyway, there's that shocking and inexplicable presence of grace. Well, I better get on my horse if I'm going to do this. Well, so I'm going to try to do a, a story from each uh, for each day. And the first one is, uh, I guess, my favorite. I mean, that's a good man is hard to find. And so I'll just kind of have to, you know, condense it just a little bit. Now, this is one of the greatest short stories ever written by anybody, anywhere. So we start out, and we've got the grandmother, and I want you to look at her. And then she's uh, she's got these two horrible grandchildren, John Wesley. Now, where did that name come from? John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church. So right off the bat, in page one, we've got a religious connection, right? And then June Starr, his uh, worthless sister, and they're just their manners are terrible, okay? And so the grandmother is reading in the newspaper about how this guy named the Misfit, this mass murderer, has gone aloose. Her, her ear for the language was just great, the colloquial. And so she's worried. They're about to go on vacation with her uh, husband named Bailey and the mother who doesn't even get a name, but she doesn't really deserve one. I mean, she just doesn't do anything in there. And so, and then they've got a cat named Pity Singh. And I've guessed that came from Pretty Thing. But then you get the little play on the word pity, which is going to be kind of important later in the story, okay? Uh, and I strongly encourage... If you don't have the collected stories of Flannery O'Connor in your library, you need to get one. It's one of the great books ever written. It's one of the, certainly one of the best collections there. So they get in the car and they start driving along, and she uses a lot of color symbolism. Uh, you get, for one thing, she, we, they start going down the country roads, and there's the red clay banks, and the red is a, is a color, traditional color for violence and death, of course. And then she's got a, and this streak with purple. And the purple is we folks around Advent or a Catholic church, we know that's a religious color. It's not just a uh, royal color, but it's also a religious color. So she's already laying the groundwork. And so you should not be surprised by the ending. If you're reading carefully, there's a lot of foreshadowing in there. So they're driving along, and they pass by a large cotton field with five or six graves fenced in the middle of it like a small island. And there are about five or six of them in the family. So, you know, it doesn't take too discerning a reader to be picking up on, you know, this doesn't look good right now. And then they stop, of course, they have to go get some, uh, get lunch. And let's, let's barbecue, right? We're in Georgia. They stop at the tower for barbecued sandwich and sandwiches and a fat man named Red Sammy Butts. She was as good with names as anybody. She and Charles Dickens, I always felt like they were the two best with names. Red Sammy Butts. I mean, she comes up with some of these names that, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know where they all came from. But they're in there going for uh, to get something to eat. And, uh, and Red Sammy's wife comes up. Manners are going to be an important part of the story. And Red Sammy's wife comes up. And, of course, she's nice. We're in the South, right? Goes up to June Star. She doesn't know what she's tackling here, right? Ain't she cute? I mean, how many times you heard that, right? Would you like to come and be my little girl? Well, we all know that's just Southern. That's, you're being polite. What does June Star say? No, I certainly would not. I wouldn't live in a broken down place like this for a million bucks. <laughs> 
ain't she cute? I mean, that's about all Mrs. Red Sammy Butts can say. And the mother says nothing. The father says nothing. Bailey boy. The mother, the grandmother's one that's, she's preoccupied with manners. Uh, aren't you ashamed she's hissing? Now, the grandmother has a good heart, but we're going to find her her uh, interest with names is uh, a little, with manners is a little bit on the shallow side, but we'll go on. And so anyway, they go along, and uh, and that she goes on talking, and the Red Sammy's got a, a monkey there that's picking fleas off himself and eating. And it's, it's just like, there's some not more of her grotesque. Well, they go get back in the car, and they start driving along towards Tombsboro. Again, another bad sign, right? Okay. And uh, they pass by a house with six white columns, more color symbolism. White's a symbol of, uh, you know, the spiritual death symbol there. Okay. And then the grandmother gets this crazy idea. She, there's this old house from her childhood that she'd like to go see. And to, to lure everybody in, she says there was a secret panel there. Probably had some, you know, very valuable things buried. And, of course, June Starr and John Wesley are all over that. Okay, the little greedy little things that they are. And Bailey Boy doesn't want to stop, but they, she's got the kids on her side. And those are with children or grandchildren going have been on a long trip. John Wesley knows how to hurt. He starts kicking, he starts kicking his daddy's seat from behind, right about kidney level, right? Okay. So fine and they're screaming, We don't ever do anything fun on vacation. So finally he says, Okay, and they pull off and they go on uh, a dirt road as it gets them down there. And uh, anyway, so it's not much farther, the grandmother said. And just as she said it, a horrible thought came to her. The thought was so embarrassing that she turned red in the face, more death and violence. And her eyes dilated and her feet jumped up, upsetting her valise in the corner. The instant the valise, they, she's... Uh, Bailey Boy didn't want the cat to come along, so she has smuggled the cat in in this black kind of suitcase in the back seat. So she kicks the, she kicks it over, okay. And anyway, pity seeing the cat sprang out of there, jumps on Bailey Boy's the driver's neck, okay. Surprise, surprise! That the car wrecks, right? All right. And uh, they just end up uh, thrown out of the, let's see, the children were thrown to the floor. The mother, they've got a little baby too, clutching the baby, was thrown out the door onto the ground. The old lady was thrown in the front seat. The car turned over once and landed right side up in a gulch on the side of the road. Um, and the kids come, of course, they love this. We've had an accident, they scream. The grandmother was curled up under the dashboard, hoping she was injured so that Bailey's wrath would not come down at her all at once. I hope I'm hurt badly. Okay. Her relationship with her son's not too good. The horrible thought she had had before the accident was that the house she had remembered so vividly was not in Georgia but in Tennessee. Okay, she, bless her heart as we say in the South. Bless her heart. You can say anything before something. You say bless her She's in the wrong state. I mean, not only is she on the wrong road. So they're gonna have, they have this accident, and it's all her fault, right? Okay. Anyway, Bailey Boy takes the cat off, throws it against the pine tree, all right? And uh, the pine is, you know, evergreens are a symbol of life and death. 
because as evergreens, they never lose their leaves, but they're the most frequently used wood in, in coffins. So you'll see a lot of writers, uh, Walt Whitman and a bunch of other people, use for life and death. And the story's about life and death. So they're in this red-gutted ditch, okay? And the mother has a broken shoulder. And June Star cries out, but nobody's killed. Uh, you know, <laughs> she's disappointed, right? Okay, and so they're down... They're down, thrown off, and they've got a, a high, you know, a high uh, precipice about ten feet. They're about ten feet down from the side of the road. Now the story starts gets going right. In a few minutes, they saw a car some distance away on top of a hill, coming slowly as if the occupants were watching them. The grandmother stood up and waved both arms. It's the grandmother again. She signals them dramatically to attract their attention. The car continued to come on slowly. Uh, it was a big, black, battered, hearse-like automobile. Okay, if you're ever out stranded and a big, black, hearse-like automobile comes, run. Okay, that's a bad side. That is not, that's not going to be a good, friendly wrecker or anybody, right? There were three men in it. So they stop the car and they get out. And there's a fat boy in black trousers and red sweatshirt. So she's really using the colors, the blacks and the reds and the purples, right? And the driver gets out and looks at the car. He was an older man than the other two. His hair was just beginning to gray, and he wore silver-rimmed spectacles that gave him a scholarly look. He had a long, creased face, didn't have on any shirt or undershirt. He had on blue jeans. They were too tight for him. Why are they too tight? He stole them. That's right. Who is this guy? This is the misfit. Okay, he stole them. And the guy he stole them from? Isn't with us anymore, I imagine. Holding a black hat and gun. The two boys also had guns. We've had an accident, the children screamed. It's, on, it's recorded if you want to hear the end of it, okay? All right, great. The grandmother had the peculiar feeling that the bespeckled man was someone she knew. His face was familiar to her as if she'd known him all her life. Anyway, and so in the, in the misfit says, and you'll find he has the best manners of them all. There's the, the irony there, you know, is that this mass murderer, this killer, has impeccable manners, okay? Faulkner once said, you know, the South, you can't understand it. You'd have to be born there. I mean, why this killer has great manners. It's just, uh, uh, I, knew, I heard of a woman, her house was going to be bulldozed the next day. What'd she do the day before? She'd clean the house. Where's the logic in that? But I get it. I understand it. Well, I gotta have it nice. They may somebody may look inside before they bulldoze it, right? I seen you all had a good had a spill. We turned over twice, said the grandmother. Once it another colloquialism. We seen it happen. Try their car, see they won't run, Hiram. Lady, would you mind calling them children to sit down by you? Children make me nervous. Now you remember, think about that, okay? Children make me nervous here. Well, I'm going to see why that is. Uh, then the grandmother shrieked. She scrambled to her feet. You're the misfit, she shrieked. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Bad, right? Because he's, he's recognized. Now he's got to kill them, right? Okay. I recognize you at once. Yes, am But it would have been better for you all, lady, if you hadn't recognized me. Bailey turned his head sharply and said something to his mother that shocked even the children. He curses his mother. The old lady began to cry, and the misfit read. The misfit doesn't like hearing this. Let's look at his relationship with his mom. He said, lady, don't get upset. Sometimes a man says things he don't mean. 
I don't reckon he mean to talk to you that way. You wouldn't shoot a lady, would you? The grandmother said. The misfit pointed the shoe into the ground and made a little hole and covered it up again. What's he doing? Symbolically. Digging a grave, isn't he? I'd hate to have to. That's one of those non-answer answers, right? Okay. Listen, I know you're a good man, the grandmother shrieked. You don't have common blood in you. I see this, this sense of common manners and stuff, common people. That's got to be stripped away from her, right? Yes, I come from the finest people in the world. God never made a finer woman than my mother, and my daddy's heart was of pure gold. Okay, So this whole thing, you can kill ladies, but don't curse in front of them, right? Manners. Manners there. Said, uh, anyway, watch them children, Bobby Lee. The other guy's named Bobby Lee, named for, of course, there are a lot of Bobby Lees running around the South after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee, right? You know they make me nervous. And he looks at the sun, he says, don't see no sun, but don't need, see no cloud neither. Now, you see, he's not going to be the one. He can't, he can't see the tree line, okay? Anyway, Bailey is helpless. He was squatting in the position of a runner about to sprint forward, but he didn't move. So he's just totally helpless with this whole thing. Okay? So anyway, they start, uh, he said, you and Bobby Lee get him and that little boy to step over yonder with you. So he takes Bailey boy and the son off in the woods, won't talk to him. He takes him off and shoots him. Okay? And then Bailey boy... The grandmother called in a tragic voice, but found she was looking at the misfit. I know you're a good man. You're not a bit common. No, I ain't a good man, but I ain't the worst in the world either. My daddy said I was a different breed of dog from my brothers and sisters. I'm sorry I don't have on a shirt before you ladies. He's just taking off the father and son to be killed. He's apologizing for being bare-chested, right? We buried our clothes when we escaped. We borrowed these from some folks we met, okay? And then she says, well, you can wear Bailey's shirt. <laughs> he, she doesn't get it, does she, right? Yes, ma'am, I thank you. <clears throat> Daddy was a card himself, the misfit said. He couldn't put anything over on him. <clears throat> he never got in trouble with the <clears throat> excuse me, authorities, though. He just had the knack of handling them. There was a pistol shot from the woods, followed closely by another. The old lady's head jerked forward, and she cried out, Bailey, boy! She just heard... Her son's died, and she's heard the wind move through the treetop, so she's linked with the tree line there, right? And then here's an important line by the misfit. He says, I was a gospel singer for a while. I've, I've been most everything. I've been twice at married, an undertaker, I believe that. Been in a tornado, seen a man burnt alive once. It. I even seen a woman flogged. I never was a bad boy that I remember of. Y'all remember that last stuff. But somewhere along the line, I'd done something wrong and got sent to the penitentiary. I was buried alive. Turn right, it was a wall. Turn the left, it was a wall. Look up, it's a ceiling. Again, he can't see the skyline, right? I forget what I'd done, lady. I sat there and sat there trying to remember what it was I'd done, but I ain't recalled it to this day. There was a head doctor in the penitentiary who said what I'd done was kill my daddy. But I know that for a lie. My daddy died in 1919 of the epidemic flu. Well, y'all with shotgun people. 1919 is 19019, right? No such year, right? And this is pure Lytle. This came from Andrew Lytle here, okay? So there's no such year. And as one of my students at Alpha pointed out, you do that letters A for one and all that stuff, A for letters and numbers. 
That spells out SOS. That's why we teach, right? I'm not smart enough to think of something like that. It takes a, you know, a Zach or somebody to do that. Amazing. Cry for help. Okay, back to what I just said about I've seen a man burn alive once. I've seen a woman flogged. Now, this is, this is just I'm speculating here. This was Lytle too. What messed him up? Why is he in the penitentiary? He did that. I think he killed his daddy. Yeah. For what? Before Beating up his mama. mama. Okay, but that was so horrific. I mean, he was just, he loved, and you see this, why, this is why he hates to hear the, the mother, you know, the grandmother curse because he loved his mama. And, and why do children make him nervous? Because they remind him of what children could do. He just, you're not going to hurt my mom anymore. You're not going to hurt my, and he burnt, burnt the house down with his dad in there. But it's so horrific that he's just, he's blocked that out of his head, Okay. All right. So anyway, they go during the story and they take off the mother, the little girl get taken off and shot. Okay, the baby. Oh my Lord, they take the baby off. Okay, uh, June Star says, "I would. I don't want to hold hands with him. He reminds me of a pig." Well, that's good. Insult the guy with a gun who's thinking about killing you. Right. All right. So anyway, near the end of the story here, and so the grandmother's just saying, "Jesus, Jesus." And he says, yes, um, says the misfit. Jesus thrown everything off balance. Says, uh, says I, I call myself the misfit because I can't make what all I've done wrong fit what all I've gone through and punish me. He says, I just don't deserve the treatment I've gotten in, in prison. There's a piercing scream from the woods. Does it seem right to you, lady, that one is punished a heap? And another is not punished at all, which for me is more evidence. He's thinking about his daddy. Remember he said his daddy couldn't ever get caught and everything? Never got punished? There are two more pistol reports. And she's and the grandmother raised her head like a parched old turkey hen, crying for water, and called Bailey boy. Bailey boy. As if her heart would break. She loves her son there. And so we've got the... So we've got, look at the mother-son relationships here with Misfit and his mom and the kids and their mom and grandmother with her son Bailey. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. He shouldn't have done it. He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but to throw everything away and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house. Back to it again. Speculating, but I've got some evidence. Or doing some other meanness. I wasn't there. So I wish I'd been there. It ain't right I wasn't there. Because if I'd been there, I wouldn't know. He wished he'd been there to see if there really was a Jesus. And you know what? If he'd, if he'd, if he'd been there, according to Flannery, he'd been, he'd been one of the best disciples ever. Because if he's for you, he's for you. But he just doesn't know. If I'd have been there, I'd have known. And I wouldn't be like I am now. His voice seemed to crack. And here we get Flannery. I said, find the heart of the story. Here's the heart of the story. Right here at the end. <clears throat> You've got your dramatic climax, technical climax, everything there. And this mother, the grandmother who has been, just her mind's been preoccupied with the manners of the, you know, of common people and the better people and stuff like that. Some of the kind of not so important stuff. Then the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She has an epiphany. 
she saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry. He's almost crying over this about not knowing Jesus and thinking back over what happened to his dad, although he doesn't really know. And she, you know what she's thinking here? Her heart just opens and she said to herself, what did they do to you? What, what, did, you know, what did they do to you to turn you into what you are now? She reaches out like a mother to a child. And she murmured, Why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. Her heart reaches out to the man who has just wiped out her family. And here's that the presence, that shocking and inexplicable presence of grace that Flannery talked about. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Bam, bam, bam. Nobody forgets the end of this story. It's famous. Three times, of course, is significant. Then he took off his glasses. The grandmother, who half sat and half lay in a puddle of blood with her legs crossed under her like a child. has got to be like a child in her heaven, right? And her face smiling up where? At the cloudless sky, she dies looking at the skyline. Without his glasses, the misfit's eyes were red-rimmed and defenseless looking. And he was picking up the cat that was rubbing itself. The funny thing, I, I teach this story. This family, the kids get blown away. doesn't faze some of the students. You know what upsets them? is when that cat got flung against the tree. And they're so relieved to hear that the cat's still alive. And I'm saying... I, folks, I don't get this. I love, I love animals too, but we've seen a family wiped out. She was a talker, wasn't she, Bobby Lee said. Famous line right here at the end. Misfit said she'd have been a good woman if there'd been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. It takes the looking at the prospect of death to clear her head. Flannery once said, this is this one most important thing she said. She said, With the serious writer, violence is never an end in itself. It is the extreme situation that best reveals what we are essentially. The man in the violent situation reveals those qualities least dispensable in his personality. Those qualities which are all he will have to take into eternity with him. And so what she's saying, kind of like with Hemingway and some other writers, it takes the prospect of, of facing the prospect of death sometimes to clear your head and make you realize, okay, what really matters to me? Is it family? Is it my faith? Is it my country? Because that's all I'm going to be able to take to, to heaven with me. And so all this other riffraff that has just been clog, you know, clogging up her head gets cleared away with facing that she's about to die and she reaches out instinctively like a mother to her child. What did they do to you? This is a good kid that got horribly messed up. It's just a great story. If y'all read uh, The Brothers Karamazov, which some call the greatest novel ever, and, and Fyodor Dostoevsky says, God and the devil are fighting, and the battlefield is the heart of man. And it's just right there. It's such a great story. Um, i got to let you go in a minute. Anything y'all want to, any questions? That, that, there's a lot that I didn't do. I had to really condense that. But it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, as one of my students said, she gave him love when she had nothing left. Isn't that nice? Uh, so what she does, 
is see, you know, you can beat the you can beat him. I've been there, done that. You can hate him. You can lock him up and forget the key. He's so tough now. He can handle all that. What can he not handle? She gives him. She what does she give him? Love. And the see that scares him to death. That's why he shoots her because the love reminds him of what the most painful time of his life when he loved his mama. And, that, and it's a, a terrible thing happened because of the love he had. And why do children make him nervous? Because they remind him of what happened there. Well, anyway, enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope y'all can come back. And I'll be here three more Sundays. And uh, I got, I've got some great stories. We'll do we'll do Hogan or Wooden what Leg. What's the next story? Let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. Be good country people. With Holga, okay? And then I'll do Greenleaf. I may get into Greenleaf a little bit next time, too. Okay, so they're the next ones. Up. Well, all right, well, i got to let you all go to church. Thanks for coming. I'm just glad somebody was here. I just, <laughs> I was going against Mark and Andrew. I said, this be empty. I may have Jocelyn, and I may not, but I, I bet you'll come. All right, well, y'all have a good day. Hey, get outside. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Bye.